Hello and welcome to the Hoover Institution's 2015 Carmel Valley Conference. I'm Chris Dower, Hoover's Director of Marketing and Strategic Communications. Our speaker in this podcast is Victor Davis Hansen, the Martin and Illy Anderson Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution. The title of his talk is After Obama, and it was recorded on May 8, 2015. It should be a pretty good time for Republicans. Barack Obama has uh, essentially destroyed the Democratic Party in about six years. If you look at the state legislatures, they're now 70% Republican. 60, over 60% of the governorships are Republican. The 2014 uh, election saw the greatest uh, Republican uh, majority since the 1920s. They own the Senate. If you look at the president's uh, poll ratings since his reelection, they've rarely been over 50 uh, percent, mostly down to, at one point to 39, even today when they've gone up a little bit. Have you, and have you noticed that the more Obama does not talk or see, be seen in public, the higher his popularity ratings are? It's almost as if people like the idea of him being president for his iconic status as long as they don't have to see or hear him. And I think he's caught on to that. So when he's quiet, he gets back up to about 44 or 45% approval. But in any case, it, and if you look at the quality of the Republican candidates, as many though there are, they're much more impressive than that dismal field of, of 2012. So it should be a, a period of exuberance. But it, it, there's some challenges here, and I think they resolve around the fact that uh, in the six years, six and a half years, Barack Obama has changed the dynamic of the American body politic and moved the political uh, goalposts, if you will, far to the left. And so the challenge for a Republican is much greater than it would be uh, that faced, let's say, uh, George uh, W. Bush, who came in after Bill Clinton, who was more or less a centrist, even more than Nixon after LBJ, and I think analogous, if not even more difficult than Reagan faced after the disaster of Jimmy Carter. And let, let me explain. And the general theme for the next 10 or 15 minutes is that the attitude or the culture has changed radically in the last six years. And to quote the Roman historian Salus, that means maybe the medicine is going to be felt to be worse than the disease, because it's going to have to be very tough. If you look at the economy, even when we change the method of recalibrating GDP by you know, including things like uh, research and development into actual GDP growth. It was flat last quarter, the economy simply not growing. Uh, we had the highest non-participation rate in, of labor since 1978. I think only 63% of the able-bodied people over 18 are actually working. And we've got this 18, soon to be $20 trillion debt. We're gonna borrow more money in the last eight years as everybody keeps reminding us than we have in the entire pre previous history of the presidencies. And what's even more disturbing about that, it's all, of a, it's all possible, sustainable, based on one or 2% interest rates, and which translates into really 0% as a passbook holder. And that's had del deleterious effects. As you know, if you're a person who worked your entire life and you put $200,000 into the bank, you're losing money in real interest, given the rate of there's no interest to be had. That's forced to stampede into the stock market. It's, it's very high. If we were to go back to the Clinton rates of 5 to 6%, the cost of servicing that debt would double. It would crowd out a lot of very important things in the federal budget. So 
we don't want, we want to raise interest rates moderately to go back to the traditions of American uh, finance of rewarding thrift and investment, but if we were to do so in, in this rock and a hard place scenario, we're going to have to do something about the, the, the debt. And the problem with that is, the last time we attempted successfully to deal with it was the Ginrich-Clinton compromises of 1996 uh, to 8. And as you remember, by 1997, there was a formula that worked out that nobody liked, but in exchange for some cuts in capital gains, et cetera, uh, there was an increase in the marginal rates up to 39.5% federal rates. And um, there were mandatory cuts in federal spending, even Medicare. At a, adjusted for inflation, sizable defense cuts, and then lo and behold, we had two years of balanced budget. But we've already shot those bullets, so to speak, because the president already is on top income has already increased uh, the Bush tax cuts back up to nearly 40%. Capital gains, for example, in a state like California is 33% state and federal. It's higher than the France's capital gains one of the highest rates in the world, California alone. And it's going to be very hard to see how you uh, could approach this problem because last month we had the largest uh, federal revenue input that we've ever had. Money is pouring into the Treasury, but the deficit, while it's not a trillion dollars, it's $500 billion. This president has redefined $500 billion as great savings. But $500 billion is itself unsustainable unless we do... Uh, something radical. So it's hard to see where the mechanics of a grand compromise are going to be when taxes have been raised, revenue is pouring in, and yet the deficit is gigantic. And this is with defense cuts. And the reason is that uh, the president won't touch entitlements and we have this monstrosity of Social Security and Medicare that we have to deal with. And we've increased things like, you know, uh, entitlements by about 30%. So some Republican president's going to have to go in there, and his, his natural inclination is going to be like Reagan and say, we're going to cut the, the marginal rates back down again, we're going to cut capital gains, and we're going to have to suffer a year or two of decreased federal revenues that will spike the deficit, which will be very hard to do to his conservative Tea Party base in order to get real growth. And people forget that in 1983, Ronald Reagan's polls were very low until the effect of the tax cuts cut in. That's going to require a particular type of Republican leader who's going to take that gamble and not a trimmer if he's going to deal with this economic problem. If you look at other things that, that have happened since 2009, there is de facto now no immigration law. Immigration law, when Obama came into office, was predicated on the election cycle to the degree that he had to go up for re-election or there was a midterm. Uh, midterm election, he, was, he talked about enforcing the law. He really didn't, but we have this static figure of 11 million, 11 million, 11 million illegal aliens. It's not 11 million. It's more likely 15 to 16 million. It's going to be very hard to see, and this summer we'll have another influx. The Republicans are divided about it. They don't know how to deal with that issue, given the potent Hispanic uh, the specter. Some in the Republican Party, what I would call the Wall Street Journal, and many in, in the Hoover Institution, have an idea that we don't really want to touch that toxic issue, and others in the more conservative traditional base say you have to. What's the, di what's the disagreement is that essentially that if you close the borders and make immigration legal and manageable, then the forces of intermarriage, assimilation, and integration will do to the Hispanic population 
what it did to the Italian population of the 19th and early 20th. In other words, if your name is Cuomo or Giuliani, nobody will know how you vote. In other words, Hispanics will intermarry, integrate like everybody else, and because they, they will not be refreshed with this half a million uh, influx that's so dependent on entitlements and so shows so much gratitude for the Democratic Party. The other wing of the Republican Party says, well, we want the inexpensive labor, and we give amnesty, they're going to like us in the short term. I don't know how you answer that, but the problem is unsustainable. It has to be addressed. And Obama has left really a time bomb where the person who is sober and judicious is going to be called a nativist, a, popu uh, a nativist, a xenophobe, a racist. It's going to require, again, a Republican candidate of a special talents who's going to have to make the populist argument that illegal immigration, A, in a political sense, is bad for the Republican Party because it doesn't let them assimilate and integrate people quick enough so that their natural conservative um, affinities might mirror image, as I said, the Italian experience. Um, and it's going to be, and it's going to be uh, especially, as I said, imp uh, necessary to emphasize that illegal immigration hurts poor people. It hurts poor workers. It hurts poor schools. Where I live, uh, the schools are about 85% uh, Latino, 90%. Most of them are illegal aliens. And it's hurting Mexican-American citizens whose uh, languages, uh, if they can't take US history, because half the people in the class don't speak English. And whether it's uh, emergency room or DMV or state agencies that are flooded or increased budget expenditures in the state vis-a-vis -vis, uh, in investment in infrastructure. As one Latino person told me the other day, I can't even drive on the 99 because they can't afford to fix it because we have too many people in the emergency room. That's a crude dichotomy, but he had a point. And so if they're going to address this issue, they're going to have to say the long-term interest of the Republican conservative movement is to get as many people in to the mainstream of American life. We can only do that if it's legal and measured immigration, and we're willing to take the short-term hit of being demagogued as nativist. But that's going to take a special type of leader. If you look at race relations, unfortunately, I gave a lecture in 2008 at Hoover uh, in March, and I, I had read very carefully Barack Obama. I went back to look at C-SPAN interviews of Michelle Obama and Barack Obama. I even knew who Reverend Wright was, believe it or not. And I gave a talk and said that this man would be a disaster because he was an unapologetic socialist. He had the most partisan record in the U.S. Senate. He had never compromised on anything. Et cetera, et cetera. And I had a, a very negative reaction from many Hoover overseers and felt that I was demagoguing the issue. And as one told me, that he was an iconic candidate and he would solve the racial issue. I thought, how was he going to solve the racial issue when he sat in Reverend Wright's church for 20 years and heard that venom and racialist diatribe? If you add in the Klinger speech, typical white person, the son I never had would look like Trayvon. That would have been like Bill Clinton weighing in on the Simpson trial and saying Nicole Simpson would have looked like the second daughter I never had. Can you imagine the reaction if, if he had said that? So we have created a racialist climate in which, if you look at the recent polls about the Baltimore agenda and the reactions to that tragic death of Freddie Gray, you see it split right down racial lines about 70% of whites are unsympathetic with the demonstrators and the looters. doesn't mean that they don't think the police did something wrong. They just feel that the root of the problem is not white privilege and white racism. The, it's exactly the mirror image uh, in the African-American community. In other words, we've got a situation now in the inner city where about 3% of the population, young African 
African-American males in the inner city are, are committing about 52% of the crime. Everybody agrees on that. And then there's a wild racially charged argument over why that is true. On the conservative side, people say, well, it's because of the disintegration of the black family, sky high and record high illegitimacy rate, endemic drug culture, an inability to talk tough about self-help and entrepreneurialism. And on the left side, it's not enough government money, not enough investment, uh, the legacy of slavery, and, and they're incompatible views. And unfortunately, uh, Barack Obama and Eric Holder and others have fanned those frames. So when you talk to, and I've been trying to talk to a, a number of African-American peoples doing radio interviews. I did one this morning, and a person called in a little bit chagrined. And as I said, it's very hard uh, to see in a case of Freddie Wright when three of the policemen involved were African-American, probably the three that were involved in the van where the state says the actual uh, de uh, death of Freddie Wright uh, was caught, Freddie Gray was caused. Uh, it's hard to see if you have three African-American uh, policemen and they're overseen by a black police chief who in turn is adjudicated or audited by a black state attorney who in turn is part of a black mayor, who in turn is under the aegis of a black attorney general at the federal level, who in turn works for a black president, to see that white racism is a cause for that. And yet that, the caller was convinced. The Republican that comes in is going to have to find a way to say that race is incidental, not essential to our characters. And that whatever we've been doing in a place like Baltimore under democratic liberal leadership, it's not only failed, it's paternalistic and racist. And we have a black elite in the media and uh, in the popular culture. If you have somebody like Mark Lamont Hill or Cornell West, you can see that when they write columns saying there's going to be more of these riots all summer long, they're using the pathologies of the uh, black underclass who actually suffer the results of their own uh, demonstrations and looting. They're using that for their own personal agenda. Whether Mark Lamont Hill gets a new book published or whether he gets a great professorship doesn't do anybody in the inner city any good, and yet he uses their anger for his own personal career. But it would take a particular type of Republican politician to point out that dichotomy, just like in illegal immigration, and say, you know, uh, the black underclass is being used by the liberal establishment. I haven't seen anybody who's been able to articulate that because of the fear of being called a racist. Just like in illegal immigration, it would take a particular type of uh, Republican po politician. Scott Walker made a noble attempt at it by saying the, uh, the Chicano elite that runs the Chicano studies or they have the Chicano agenda or the liberal element of the Democratic Party who wants future constituents and voters is using poor people to come in and is not concerned about the actual conditions in their schools and in their, in their emergency rooms and their state services just because of their own elite agenda. They don't, and they, but again, to break that matrix takes special skills. I wish I could say it was just a domestic challenges that's going to uh, occur after Obama, but look at foreign policy. Usually in history, when wars start, it's after prolonged periods of appeasement uh, juxtaposed with periods of deterrence or the ability to try to restore a deterrence. When after the Rhineland, the Saarland plebiscite, the Anschluss, the absorption of Czechoslovakia, Hitler was not convinced that England or Britain would go to war over Poland. He had just signed a non-aggression pact with the Soviet Union, and he, as General Halder said in his diary, I told the Fuhrer they will go to war, and he said there's no way they're going to go. I saw them 
at Munich, they were worms. If I see Chamberlain again, I want to take his umbrella and hit him over the head and stomp on that little man. But what he didn't realize, that Chamberlain had come under such pressure by Churchill, who was gaining ascendancy and was promised the first lord of the admiralty and would soon take over the prime ministership after the fall of France, that England really would fight and France had had enough. And that war was started not just because Soviet Union cut a deal with, with Hitler and freed him up in the East, but because uh, of a long period of appeasement and then a belated 11th hour effort to restore deterrence. Same thing was true in World War I. Same thing was true when Dean Acheson said Korea does not fall under the American uh, defensive umbrella, and then we had to you know, make up for lost time and pour in troops to Korea. So what I'm saying is if you look at the Middle East today, and see the destruction of Egypt, essentially, when we, for some reason, supported the Muslim Brotherhood's one-election, one-time agenda to Islamicize the country. If you look at what our special relationship with Erdogan has done to Turkey, uh, as it Islamicizes and tries to cre create an, another uh, Ottoman Empire in the eastern Mediterranean, if you look what the mess of what differences that make lead behind has done to Libya and the sources of ISIS and Al-Qaeda, right on the... Uh, northern shore of Africa, just uh, six hours away from Europe. If you look at what China has done in uh, the Far East and the China Sea, it's really been telling Australia, New Zealand, the Philippines, Taiwan, South Korea, and Japan, the United States is no longer there. You may not know it, but you're no longer under the American nuclear umbrella. The pivot was a joke. We fly over your airspace, we go into your coastal waters, we're putting sandbars off your co coast, and you either have to go nuclear yourself to create a deterrence and autonomy, and you won't do that, or you'll have to cut a deal with us. That's pretty much the mood that you see in Asia now. And for a Republican president to go in there and to rally our allies and say, well, you know what, we're going to stand firm, we're going to beef up our defenses, we're going to stop this bullying on the part of China, is going to be seen as the media as very, very aggressive, uh, as saber-rattling in the way that as soon as Ronald Reagan said, this is enough, we're going to put missiles in Europe, we're going to have missile defense, suddenly the TV had every, almost every day a, 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 a docudrama about nuclear war, nuclear winter, et cetera, et cetera, and he was called a warmonger. It took a long time for him uh, to convince the American people that that would lead to real peace, but he was a special type of leader who was willing to take, again, the short-term hit. If we move on to Vladimir Putin, we see that reset, remember what reset was, reset was only a reset of George Bush's policy, which had finally punished Putin for going into Osatia. He went into Osatia in Georgia, Putin, uh, Bush got mad, cut off high-level talks, put in some sanctions, brought troops from Iraq that, you were, uh, that were Georgian, etc. Hillary Clinton came in, Barack Obama came in, now John Kerry, and basically said, we were sorry for that, that was too tough, and he went into the Crimea, Ukraine. Uh, he'll probably go into uh, Estonia before this administration is over with. And uh, I don't know what'll happen when he goes into Estonia. Top-ranking generals and admirals have already said, we have no, we have no ability to, to deter him. Problem is, this will be the first country that's in NATO. And so if it evokes Article 5, and says that each and all NATO powers must come to the assistance of Estonia, and they don't, and many of them will not, 
I can guarantee you that, then I don't know what happens to NATO other than it shrinks back to a much smaller and, and humiliated alliance. So for a Republican president to come in, just in, in, in not just in Asia or the Middle East, but to go into Europe and say, we're going to really restore NATO spending to 2%, all you guys, we're here for you, we're beefing, you, beefing up, we're going to put troops back in at a time of financial crisis, it's going to be very difficult. I could go on, but you can see in South America there was a point where free market economics, constitutional government was sweeping that continent in the late 90s and early 2000s. And now, uh, with our new restored relationship with Cuba, uh, Daniel Ortega dressed down Barack Obama for 45 minutes and pretty much libeled the United States, and the president said, don't blame me, I was only three years old at the time. In other words, your harangue against America is not what bothers me. What bothers me is you included me as being responsible, and I'm not. And if you look at, as I said, Venezuela, Bolivia, Argentina, Brazil, uh, Peru, Ecuador, uh, Nicaragua, Honduras, they're very anti-American, and they're, they're adapting a failed collectivization uh, status policy, socialist. How we're going to deal with that, I don't know, but it's going to take somebody like Reagan, and once again, when he went in, the same thing was happening, and he was called a murderer, he had blood on his hands, the Contras, et cetera, et cetera. There's some other problems that the president's going to face. Uh, think for a minute of uh, what I would call scandals and ethics. The IRS, as we're speaking today, Lois Lerner had pled the Fifth Amendment, turned that agency, at least her division of that agency, into a partisan uh, agency of the Obama campaign to shut down the Tea Party and conservative tax-free organizations. There's a 1,500 employers of the IRS didn't pay their taxes and the government knew about it. We have 100,000 federal employees that are tax cheats. George Soros may owe $7 billion. The whole news, cat, uh, the news anchors in MSNBC from Melissa Harris-Perry to Ture are tax cheats. So you get the impression that under Obama, for one reason or another, there was a perception on a lot, part of a lot that if you worked for the federal government or you were of a particular political persuasion that you were going to be exempt from paying your full uh, amount of taxes that you owed. I don't know what the president will have to do when he comes in there, but that whole agency is going to have to be reviewed. I don't know what you're going to do if Hillary Clinton were to lose the election, but we're starting to discover that I think that's one of the greatest scandals of the, of the, uh, the last half century. We basically have a foundation called the Clinton Initiative, Global Initiative, where 90% of its expenditures went to higher former campaign staffers and Clintonites who were in limbo between uh, Clinton tenures and then uh, to raise $70 million for private jet travel for the Clinton family. And then we learned that Bill and Hillary are worth over $100 billion. And Chelsea, of all things, she only worked two years at a hedge fund, which Hillary attacks as unfair. She's worth almost $20 million. And uh, you get the impression that that foundation was created to facilitate the travel and the friends of the Clintons and only give 10% of its, its outlay to charities. And in exchange, Bill Clinton's speaking record went from 250000 per lecture to 750000 These are not places like France or Germany, but they're outliers, Kazakhstan, et cetera, places in Africa. And it was pretty clear that Hillary Clinton reversed her positions from senator to secretary of state in accordance with uh, the fundraising uh, success of Bill Clinton for the initiative and for his own speaking fees. What do you do with that mess? I don't know, but it, would be, it seems to me that the next president, if he were to be bold, would have to restore integrity and have a special prosecutor look at things like this. 
Where does, uh, final thing is, is the abuse of presidential power. I mean, all presidents in, in the 20th century increased the latitude of the chief executive. But with Obama, whether it was going after Boeing on its unionization or a little guitar company or telling the state of Texas that we can't pass these EPA standards, however, we're going to uh, implement them by fiat on your coal plants, et cetera, or whether it was just unilaterally shutting down the Keystone Pipeline or taking, the, uh, as we just heard, taking elements of Obamacare and deciding which ones uh, you were going to enforce and which ones you were not going to enforce depending on the particular cycle of the elections. That was, that was quite illegal to do that. And of course, suspending uh, immigration law unilaterally. And the temptation will be, of course, is that the liberal media endorsed all of this because they thought that the noble ends of an egalitarian society outweighed the nasty and illegal means to obtain them. And so it's almost, if some of you remember the Lord of the Rings, the novel, or the movie, it was the ring of power could be used and it could give you great authority and influence over your enemies, but it also would corrupt you. And so that's what the executive power, I think, it will do. The next Republican president is going to come into office and say, my God, Obama gave me a great gift. I've got, I've got the Senate, I've got the House, I've got the state legislators and governors, and the, he has set a standard that the president can do things and make up his own law, and I can, I can enforce this. I can deport everybody tomorrow without Congress if I want to. I can unilaterally cut this program, even though it, it's a law. I can just say, you know what? I don't like the Endangered Species Act. It retards, and I can't uh, waste my political capital repealing it in the Congress, so I'm just not going to enforce it. I'll just say, forget it. And I can not only do this because Obama set this precedent, but I, can, I won't be criticized uh, effectively. Effectively, He'll be criticized, but not effectively by the media because they're abject hypocrites. They have created the, the doorway for me to go through. It'll be a great temptation for a Republican president. In conclusion, what does all this mean? I, I think it's, it's, a, it's the worst and best of times. Uh, whoever the particular uh, Republican nominee will be, he's going to inherit a very difficult situation where, uh, as I said, the medicine is going to be considered as nasty as the disease. We haven't even talked about Social Security and Medicare and food stamps that have doubled, et cetera, et cetera. And, this might require qualities that uh, we haven't seen in Republican leaders in the past. For example, I think that Mitch, uh, Mitt Romney would have been an excellent president. So would John McCain, not as good, but an, uh, fine. But they were both lousy candidates, and uh, they were both um, following just one term of Obama, and in the case of McCain, uh, Bush's term. However, um, this is a, a very different very different time, a very different political landscape. It's going to require a particular type of nominee that does not uh, avoid political uh, free-for-all and does not mind uh, being criticized, but actually welcomes it. It's somebody who has executive experience, and he goes into the fray thinking, I've got to do all of these things. I'm not going to be demagogic. I'm not going to be gratuitously rude, I'm going to be Reagan-esque in my upbeat personality, but I'm not, feel, I'm not fooling myself. The other side interprets magnanimity as weakness. And I've got to be tough, I'm going to, I just expect that every time I go before the press, I'm going to be hated, I'm going to be caricatured, I'm going to be, and I'm going to do this for at least four years, and then I'm going to leave office in disgrace, but I will, history will finally make a, a pop, proper assessment. And um, 
with that, I'll be happy to take your questions if you think any of them fit that criteria. Thank you very much. For more podcasts from the Hoover Institution, please visit hoover.org or Hoover's channels on iTunes, iTunes U, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. I'm Chris Dower for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening.